Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Thursday morning, the 24th of August. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. Over the past 17 years, that's from 2005 up to 2022, there's been a significant decline in the number of public houses in this country. The number of pubs is down by 22.5%. That's from 8,617 pubs in 2005 to 6,680 pubs pubs for the most recent period which is up to the end of last year a closure that represents uh, 1,937 pubs across the country since 2005. That's according to a report from the Drink Industry Group Ireland, which was published yesterday. And with almost 2,000 fewer pubs in this country now, the report highlights the impact on tourism, less facilities and services used by visitors from abroad and home. That impacts on hospitality, food, entertainment, uh, and of course, traditional music, the cultural significance of the pub cannot be underestimated. And then there's the impact on the locals, what we do socially. Uh, A pub is something that this report says makes a significant social contribution to Irish communities. It helps to support social relationships, community cohesion and social capital. Uh, And it's a basic means of socialisation for many people who would otherwise have very limited interaction with anyone else in their community. A third place for social socialisation and engagement, according to the report. Let's speak uh, to the Chief Executive of the BFI, Porik Cribben, who's on uh, the line. And a very good morning to you, Porik, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Has this got to do with demographics, or has it more to do with drinking habits, do you think? I think it's a combination of a number of things, uh, Michael. I-, I think the first thing to say is probably uh, we were overpubbed, uh, so that's uh, there's a certain amount of the market uh, rectifying itself. Uh, demographically, you will see that the the biggest falls have been along the west coast. Uh, the the smaller falls, I mean, if you take Mead for example, uh, it's it's out of the 26 counties. It is uh, the 25th. 
uh, Loud is is about in the middle. Dublin is the lowest. So demographics uh, play a part, and changing lifestyles uh, also also playing a part. Mm. And but I think there's there's also two sides to the coin. Uh, there is this st- story and the narrative that <coughs> uh, where we have seen a lot of pubs close. On the other hand, we've seen a lot of investment. We've seen a lot of innovation. Uh, we've seen a lot of change in the offering. Uh, and I think that for those that are there, there's a very vibrant business. There's a very uh, vibrant set of publicans around that are responding to the, the wants and the needs of a new marketplace because the marketplace is very different in 2023 than it was in 2005. All right. Uh, I suppose relative to other counties, particularly along uh, the West Coast, uh, you could say that both County Mead and County Louth are relatively urban counties. Uh, And that shows in in the figures. There's been a decline, as you say, in County Mead. In 2005, there were 210 pubs. That's dropped by just nine to 201 pubs. Now, in County Louth, uh, it's a, a more significant drop going from 227 to 176 pubs. Uh, But if we think back to 2005 and the smoking ban uh, which was introduced not long before that uh, and indeed the clampdown on drink driving, you'd have to wonder if both of those measures have impacted on rural pubs. Uh, There is no doubt that they have had uh, an impact. Uh, All of those measures together with, uh, I mean it's it's, it's considerably more expensive to do business now uh, than it was in 2005. And overheads certainly have increased uh, way out of line with uh, the types of, of inflation we've seen. Uh, and, you know, whether it be in, in, in areas like insurance, whether it be in areas uh, like energy, etc., it is a challenging business from that point of view. Uh, and we are, for those who are in the food, the food element of the business, we're seeing now the VAT going back up on the 1st of September. So all of those challenges are there that are making it uh, more difficult for sustainability. Uh, but as I say, on the other hand, there has been, if you look at the the offering that's there today versus 2005, uh, whether it be in terms of food, in terms of sport, in terms of entertainment, in terms of events, uh, they bear no, uh, no, no, no comparison. Uh, and I think that's a sign, as I say, of a high level of investment and entrepreneurship. And we've seen that post-COVID as well, where people have had to readdress their business, readdress their working hours, etc. And all of that uh, is, it's, it's, it's indicative mm. of a sector that's responding to the needs of the market. But it, it is felt all the more in regional counties, isn't it? Uh, Limerick uh, has seen the biggest decline. That's a, an incredible statistic. There's a third fewer pubs uh, than there were 17 years ago. Uh, is there anything behind that, do you think? No, I think, as I said at the beginning, uh, there was, uh, and, and it varied from county to county, from region to region, a significant level of overpubbing, uh, and and we're seeing that correction. Uh, there's nothing that people are doing different in Limerick uh, than they, than they are, say, in Mead, except for you know there's been a significant population growth in Mead, uh, maybe compared to Limerick. If you look at some of the counties badly affected, like Roscommon and Leitrim and Mayo, yes, there has been uh, in those areas, particularly young people leaving, uh, and uh, you know th- th- that that's. It's a, it's a very difficult uh, demographic 
uh, to, to to survive in, mm. uh, in in some of those areas. Are, are they drinking at home as much in Limerick, do you think, uh, as they are in Mead? Uh, because uh, I think particularly uh, when we were locked down as a result of COVID, people realised that they could have friends around, they could have their drinks, they could have great crack and save a fortune. Uh, I'm not so sure that, uh, in actual fact, the the reality bears that out, uh, Michael, because when COVID was lifted, what we actually saw was a, a, a total resurgence in people wanting to get back to the pub, realising what they had missed when COVID wasn't there. So, essentially, I think the one thing that COVID has done, uh, it, it has brought home to people the importance of that social interaction outside of the home uh, and we, we've seen particularly you know particularly with draft products I think that the, the, what we've seen is a major resurgence there because people couldn't a have the draft products mm. but you get fed up you know from sitting on the couch at home and talking to the same people uh, and the social interaction that comes with the pub uh, it was was very severely missed and then as we've seen uh, since uh, reopening, there's actually been a resurgence of people going back to the pub, particularly younger people. Well, young people have um, their own way of doing both, don't they? I don't know if it's uh, made it into the dictionary yet, uh, but every young person knows what prinks are, pre-pub drinks. Uh, And that seems to be the trend that uh, they meet up somewhere, have a few drinks, takeaway drinks, uh, and then go to the pub or a nightclub. Yeah, that's a you know that's a phenomenon that uh, the the that's uh, called them the more mature generations would not have been uh, familiar with. Uh, it has it has become, uh, or I, I'd say had become uh, considerably more prevalent. Uh, I think it's less of a factor post COVID, but you know we've got to see how long post COVID that remains as well. Uh, yeah, it is it is a factor in the equation. Drinking habits have changed. You know, people are a lot more health conscious as well today, and hence we're seeing the growth, a considerable growth in areas of the the low and no alcohol products, which uh, are you know they're they're coming from a very low base, mm. uh, but they're showing significant um, significant growth. Mm. And as this report points <laughs> out, uh, and I don't think there's any arguing with it, uh, the pub is a, a great place for people to socialise, and that in certain parts of the country there is nowhere else to go if the local pub in a village closes down that's kind of the end of the village isn't it? Well it's the end of socialising in the village that's for sure uh, uh, You know, that there are many villages that don't have community centres, don't have social centres, uh, don't have places to meet and the only place that you know facilitates that uh, we could be uh, meetings, etc. Would be the local pub, yeah. And I, I think what's activity, you know, whether it's a post office or whether it's the local shop uh, or whether it's the local hairdresser, if 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 any of those close, they take a certain level of vibrancy and life out of the village, and that can have a snowballing effect that you know does lead to. Uh, more isolation in that area, which is not good. Mm. And what do you think it means for people in those villages who do socialise? Do they leave the village and go elsewhere? Uh, uh, and what does that mean? Do they drink drive or do they go to a pub in a neighbouring village uh, and uh, drink a, a non-alcoholic beverage? 
I think there's a there's a combination of things happen. Uh, you know, people, social animals will will be social animals, and they will find a way to socialise. If that means going to uh, the neighbouring the, the neighbouring pub or the neighbouring village and finding a mechanism, uh, either with a dedicated driver uh, uh, or a designated driver, uh, that they'll find a way. Uh, but it's it's a uh, it becomes particularly inconvenient. And, you know, for people who are uh, short on social contacts, uh, it can be pretty challenging. Okay, Uh, and undoubtedly some of them will have a a drink at home uh, because uh, that just is easier. Uh, And no doubt uh, you've a vested interest interest in this, Parik, uh, as uh, Chief Executive of the VFI, but I think generally speaking, people don't want uh, to be in a situation where there is no pub to go to for the reasons that we've just been talking uh, about. Uh, And you want support, uh, you want something done on excise duty. Yeah, well, I mean, we currently, as a nation, we have the um, the highest level, second second highest level of excise in in Europe, and it's not just that we have the second highest level because league tables, you know, can be misleading. If you take, for example, um, a beer, uh, the, the the average excise on a pint of beer here is fifty five cent. The average excise on the same pint of beer uh, in um, in Germany, for example, it's five cent. If you if you take uh, a, a glass of wine, there is um, in in on a seven euro glass of wine, for example, here between VAT and excise, you're paying two euros and eleven. Where in most most of the producing countries in Europe, there is there is no excise. And people sometimes say, you know, this is dear, that is dear. Mm-hmm. If you look at the average pint costing say five euro one euro 48 of that every time you drink a pint of a five euro pint one euro 48 is going to the government in VAT and excise and what we're saying to government is there is a requirement to bring the excise levels back into towards the European norm it's not that we're number two in the league is that if you take Finland Ireland and Sweden we're in a league of our own that is it's like the premiership and 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 the next that the next division is not championship or league one but league two it's way way down mm. so essentially what we're saying to government is that they need over the next two budgets to reduce excise by roughly 15 percent seven and a half percent now seven and a half percent next year uh, to start to bring it back towards the european norm uh, and that 148 that the government takes out of uh the five euro that you pay for your pint uh, that uh, is for every five euro you spend if you spend ten euro we spoke about to pubs and temple bar uh, the last time you were on charging ten euro a pint does that mean that the government takes three euro or thereabouts or if some of the pubs are charging fifteen euro I'm not sure that they're expensive but I was told that some of them are charging more than ten euro does that mean on a, a fifteen euro pint if anybody was mad enough to pay that uh, that four fifty would go to the government uh, if anybody was mad enough to pay that, yes. I mean, the VAT, the VAT is 23% of the sale price. The excise itself stays constant, uh, but the VAT, the VAT element will go up based on the actual price of the pint uh, or whatever, you, whatever your tipple happens to be. Uh, it, it will go up in, in, in line with that. The, the excise itself remains constant. Okay. Are, are those 
prices justified? Uh, because no doubt that would be one of uh, the questions asked uh, if uh, the pubs are ripping people off. Why should they get that sort of a, a break? Uh, if three euro goes to the government out of a, a 10 euro pint, that still leaves seven euro. And of course, uh, the product has to be paid for. Uh, but can those prices be justified? Is it that expensive to run a, a pub in Dublin uh, that you need to charge as much? Uh, Michael, there are um, all of the time we hear about the 9 and 10 euro pint in Temple Bar. Uh, there are 14 pubs in Temple Bar. There are 8,000 pubs in the country. Uh, I think we need a, a level of perspective. Uh, the vast, vast majority of pubs, your pint is somewhere around the 5 euro to 5.50. Uh, and if you take that, if you take that 5 euro to 5.50, you're taking, as I said earlier, in, in very round terms, you have 150 going to the government, you have 150 going to uh, the supplier, and you have about two euro left for the publican to uh, pay all his bills, or her bills as the case may be, uh, pay for Sky, uh, which by the way, if, if you were to take uh, Sky just as, a, as an example, uh, at the cost of Sky, for if you just had one television do Sky, not two, mm. you would, the first 17 pints you pull every day of every week in every month goes to pay for Sky. Okay. Just for Sky alone. That's before very expensive. At, <laughs> There's no doubt Sky television is very expensive at all. More. So, uh, before is that, you look at refrigeration and uh, energy and labour and cleaning and all that. So uh, and the other the other point is, you know, yes, there, there are these crazy prices out there and that's the yeah. only way you can describe them. But they are uh, in a percentage of pubs that doesn't mm. even doesn't even register on the scale. Okay, so for the vast majority of uh, the eight thousand pubs, uh, and uh, I'd say practically nearly all of them outside of the big cities outside of Dublin if not all of the big cities you're talking about five, five fifty a pint uh, if excise was comparable to other European countries are you saying that instead of paying that we should be paying four euro or four fifty a pint well if you take the, if you take the German comparison which is reasonably indicative of what happens in other parts of Europe uh, it would be that the, the, the price would be 50 cent less Okay, so that's four fifty-five euro a pint. Yeah, so okay. it's, it's mm. you know it, 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 it's it's not rocket science, uh, and 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 the and the numbers uh, and and the data are available, uh, you know, right across Europe. Mm. But uh, yeah, I mean, if you take it, it's 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 fifty cent of a difference. That fifty cent goes onto the you know it goes yeah. straight onto the price. Uh, and. I- believe that the taxes on alcohol are as high as they are for public health reasons uh, would that cause public health concerns actually i don't accept that because you know the 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 public health uh, concerns have been addressed by things like minimum unit pricing etc and one of the things that um government will say the department of finance will say is that they are not influenced uh, it is they are influenced by revenue, not by public health concerns. So I wouldn't overplay the public health concerns, and the public health concerns that are there have been addressed by and large by minimum unit pricing. Okay.
Parik, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed for joining us Thank on you, the programme today. I imagine we'll hear lots more from uh, the drinks industry going into the budget on excise duty. That was Parik Cribben, who's the chief executive of the Vintners Federation of Ireland. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Yeah, thanks uh, to Jimmy Glugley, who has sent an email saying, Dear Michael, please explain the logic of allowing energy companies to charge what they will, leading to the closure of many businesses and then imposing windfall taxes rather than the opposite way of controlling tariffs in the first place, thereby saving jobs and industry. I trust the windfall taxes will equal, equal the super normal profits. So the net financial result will be the same, except we will protect businesses and the livelihoods of workers, etc. Thank you indeed. Uh, Jimmy, Michael at lmfm.ie is our email address and uh, I wonder if that was uh, an email that was prompted uh, by the news uh, that uh, we pay more for electricity in this country than in uh, 32 European countries. Uh, this is according to the Household Energy Price Index. Nine €900 more a year is spent on electricity per household than the European average. 80% higher than the European average. Dublin and London are the most expensive cities for household customers in Europe, followed by Prague, Riga and Berlin. Let's speak to Tricia Keelty, Head of Social Justice and Policy with the Society of St. Vincent de Paul. A very good morning to you, Tricia. Thanks for joining us. You're probably not terribly surprised to hear that it's more expensive here than it is almost anywhere else uh, to pay for your electricity. Uh, but do you understand why that is uh, the case and does it need to be the case? So, yeah, no, it's, it's not surprising um, to us because obviously we see the impact of these very high prices on households across the country every week in terms of people's ability to, to pay their bills and, you know, afford adequate heat and light. We, we know, you know, from what um, Ireland in comparison to other countries is that we don't actually generate enough um, energy sources ourselves or we, we rely too much on imported um, fossil fuels, which that's what contributes to our higher prices. But for someone who's trying to make ends meet, um, that's of, of little comfort because people really, really do um, struggle at the moment. And I suppose what's concerning for us is that We've got very, very high prices still as we're preparing to go into another winter of high prices, and that's a concern for us. Okay, and I suppose the rest of Europe has been facing the same challenges, but the cost of a unit of electricity in this country is 47.12 cent compared to 26.34 cent across the European Union. That's the average, at least. And it's not just electricity. It's half the price for gas, it would seem, across Europe. It would be very valuable saving to people if we could match prices, wouldn't it? Yes, absolutely. So if we can look at different ways of reducing the burden on people who are trying to pay their bills and can't afford adequate heat and light, everything should be looked at. And I suppose we need to look to other European countries to see what their policies are in relation to energy supply. I know from our point of view, it's really important that we move towards renewable energy because the costs will be um, greatly reduced for people but that will take time so in interim we need to ensure that the government can look at some sort of price control and also look at income support to households to make sure that they can um, they can make ends meet. Mm. And it's not just energy, groceries, rent, 
insurance, uh, everything. We seem to be uh, getting hit uh, from every direction. Yeah, that's right, and we're really seeing that. Um, so far this year, we've taken um, over 130,000 calls from households who are struggling to make ends meet, and that's up about um, 11% compared to the same time last year. And it is those um, core essentials that are vital for survival that people are really struggling to pay for and um, you know the cost of food is still really really high we saw you know the the consumer price index says it is slowing but they're mm. still rising and they're still at a very very high level um, and you know families are really struggling to put food on the table mm. and then if you add that you know a rent increase or a mortgage increase you know it's, it's coming at people from all angles at the moment. Yeah and well the increases are, are slowing but that's no good news because it, it means that they're continuing to increase on top of what became unaffordable prices and in the last year alone the likes of bread or rice or pasta breakfast cereals up 8%, mix, meat is up nearly 7%, vegetables by 11%. Uh, that's a, on top of what were already existing pri- uh, expensive prices, I beg your pardon. Yeah, that's right. And I suppose what we do know as well, that if you're on a low income, you're going to be disproportionately impacted by those price increases for basic goods because you spend a much higher proportion of your income on things like food and energy. So households on low incomes, whether that's people in low paid work or on social welfare, um, feel that much um, more acutely. But I suppose everybody across across the country is seeing the rise in their food bills and the rise in their energy bills as well. So, you know, I suppose the next budget is going to be really decisive for people in terms of how they're going to be able to cope mm. uh, towards the end of this year and into next year. Well, we hear stories of people deciding or uh, feel they have no option, probably better put, uh, not to eat meat, uh, that maybe if there's meat in the house, they give it to the children and they forego it themselves because it's too expensive. If that was the case a year ago and uh, the cost of meat has gone up by 7% in that time, well, there's going to be no change in that, particularly when you take into account uh, the increases in the price of everything else. Uh, so, um, do you try to bring the prices down or do you try to increase incomes? Uh, and uh, therein comes the budget decisions, I take it. Absolutely. I suppose it's, it's both. So, we need to see prices come down, but we also need to ensure that incomes are adequate to meet the cost of essentials. So, it's really important that um, our minimum wage goes up and moves towards the living wage and that we see social welfare increases matched against the, the cost of living as well. Because if we don't do that, people are going to be struggling more and more um, and all those issues are going to pile up um, and people are going to have to continue to make those difficult choices because it's constantly juggling um, if you are trying to make ends meet and a lot of people are experiencing that Mm. uh, constant stress and strain at the moment. And these aren't luxuries of course Uh, I mean these are some of uh, the fundamental things to living in uh, the modern age uh, and where you live uh, has become Another unaffordable thing for so many people with rents increasing and so many people now in a corner because of the increase in interest rates. Yeah, that's right. And I suppose people are are just being squeezed on on every angle as well. And it's just very, very difficult. And it's not just, you know, rents and mortgages. We're seeing a lot of households in rural areas that are feeling the impact of, you know, rising um, transport costs. Um, And if you're on in an area where there isn't a large supermarket you know you have to travel that costs money you may not be able to avail of like low-cost supermarkets or 
value lines and things like that. So for people in rural areas as well, they're they're faced with a different set of, of issues that can compound already um, issues around income inadequacy and, and um, uh, financial difficulty as well. Okay. Uh, I take it uh, that because of uh, these increases, uh, we're talking about uh, bills not being paid and debts mounting up. Uh, when you look at uh, wholesale energy prices, we're talking about a, an increase of 64% in the course of uh, the last year. Uh, are you coming across a, a lot of money, who are, or a lot of people who are in arrears? Yeah, so if you look at our, our calls, so I mentioned there we're up about 11% overall, but our calls for energy are up 60% compared to last year. So we still have people who have debt coming out of last winter and the concern is that they will still have debt on their account and go into another winter of high prices. Now, it's important to say that their suppliers are operating support schemes. So if you are struggling to pay a bill, it's really important that you get in touch with your supplier because they do have hardship funds in operation. Um, you can also get a payment plan and things like that. But really, we are looking at a longer term period of high prices and I suppose we know that wholesale prices are falling but they're not passed on to customers yet um, and I suppose we'd be urging suppliers to do that as soon as possible and um, we would expect a price decrease coming into autumn and winter this year but it's still not going to be um, the level of cut that's needed for people to be able to afford um, to make it affordable for people. What happens if somebody is in debt uh, and they're facing being cut off uh, if they come to you um, do you pay off those bills or how do you help people? Yeah, so there's a number of different things we can do. So the first thing we would say is it's really important to talk to your supplier because if you're speaking with your supplier they can't cut you off. We have a, a support system called the Energy Engage Code. So suppliers can't cut off an engaging customer. So that's the first thing we would say to people. Then we can refer people to a hardship fund if the supplier that they're with actually operates one of those. And then we can also look at providing direct financial assistance with that person as well. The other options are a payment plan. So spreading the cost of the bill over a number of weeks that makes it affordable for people to make those repayments. And then also making sure people have their entitlements, whether they're maybe eligible for the fuel allowance or other support that can mm. help. Okay. No doubt you'd encourage people to reach out to you and seek help if they are in trouble. Uh, and I know that uh, people are always very generous uh, as well in supporting St. Vincent de Paul. Absolutely. We, we couldn't do the work that we do without the support of the public. And, and we also know at the same time it's not always easy to pick up the phone to SVP, um, but we are there. We, we offer a confidential, non-judgmental service. Um, and, you know, many people are out there struggling, um, so people shouldn't feel ashamed about um, reaching out for help. And there's also organisations like the Money Advice and Budgeting Service that can also provide assistance as well. Tricia, thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Tricia Keelty is Head of Social Justice and Policy with the Society of St. Vincent de Paul. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. And so I said yesterday I was very taken aback with uh, the reaction we received uh, from people predominantly in Lordship uh, about how the council has replaced speed ramps with speed cushions. These are these very small speed ramps uh, and people want the speed ramps back as we heard from uh, Stephen on the programme yesterday. Michael and Cooley said the cushions don't even stop my car due to their small size. They're useless. Years 
process of petitioning the council to resolve this and they go back ways with safety. The council are disgraced blaming Gardaí. It's the council that removed the safe ones. It's a shame we haven't ramps in Belurgan and at the Bush School. All are as equally dangerous, if not more so, than Lordship. If only people obey the speed limits, more traffic core speed checks are needed, says Michael. Uh, if the lorries weren't speeding, they wouldn't have an issue. Well done, Stephen. The lorry drivers on the road to, to Greenore need to learn the speed limits. The statistics don't lie. And unfortunately, the fatalities on this stretch of road involves uh, lorries. Um, somebody else says, at the moment, Michael, you can't even see those bumps until you're on top of them. Uh, useless. Uh, in other words, uh, somebody else in touch with us about speed cushion saying, it allows vehicles to pass through without slowing down if they straddle the cushions. Paul in touch saying uh, he'd be concerned about access for emergency vehicles. Bridget says the speed cushions appear to be uneven. They just look awful. Shane in touch saying speed cushions may not slow down vehicles as much as the ramps do, especially if the driver is familiar with the road. They can just simply navigate around them. Jason says that in some cases a combination of different traffic calming measures is what you need to do. Whether you use speed ramps or speed cushions, bring in cameras and other things and that'll slow the cars down. Uh, another uh, call or text, sorry, from Oshin who says I don't know why we have to have these things if uh, the drivers just drove at uh, the appropriate speed uh, there wouldn't be a problem. They're a nightmare for people like me on bicycles. Uh, we'd uh, Bridget in touch too who says drivers voluntarily reduce their speed when they come to these things or else they just go around them. If there's a lack of consistency in the law and its enforcement, penalties uh, for speeding and that sort of thing, some drivers may not feel compelled to slow down uh, or uh, if they have to slow down, the next thing you know, they're accelerating and then they're slowing down and then they're accelerating and then they're braking again and all of that is very dangerous. An email came to us from Michael Muckiam, who's the chairperson of uh, the Cooley Peninsula Community Alert Group. He said he listened with great interest to Stephen and Councillor Waters. I totally agree with the new. I, I totally agree with the new cushions. Uh, they, that the, they don't even stop my car due to the small size of them. They're useless. Years of petitioning to change this. Uh, the councillor disgrace. Uh, this is going to be a key topic. He sa- topic he says at our public meeting next Tuesday at half seven in Cooley Kickhams, uh, Guardian local reps are invited to attend. It's a shame uh, that uh, we don't have uh, these ramps everywhere. If only people obey the speed limits, there wouldn't be a need for them. We need more traffic core. Speed checks were agreed for the start of September with Superintendent Armstrong around Lordship as it was an issue even with the ramps. They've committed to an operation at the start of September around the schools on this route and it's a shame penalty points are the temporary solution. The ramps are extremely cheap uh, if they save lives. Thank you indeed, Michael, for that. On a separate subject, uh, we'd um, an email that came to me from Jerry Floyd and Jerry says, uh, we are aware that we do not have enough 
prison space for all the people who don't pay their TV licence. Uh, it's a criminal offence not to pay uh, the fee. Uh, a criminal record can affect your right to travel or gain entry to many countries. Not paying could create a debt situation affecting your credit status. Many people will, or most people, he says, will eventually pay apart from the crowd who refuse to even pay attention. Thank you indeed. Uh, we'd uh, text then that came to us uh, this morning. Anyone feeling a wee earthquake this morning at nine o'clock? Uh, setting in car, sitting in the car in Carrickmacross. It shook twice. No wind or big trucks passing. Cheney Mac, are you serious? I, <laughs> I haven't heard anything. Maybe if uh, anybody uh, felt a, a bit of a shake, uh, you'd let us know, uh, and uh, we'll get on. I presume to the Met Office uh, to ask if there's been an earthquake. What a strange message. Thank you uh, for that. Uh, John says, a pint of Guinness in Bergen, Norway is €18 a pint in the average pub. Thanks, John. How much is a a local lager, I wonder? I'd say it's uh, probably very expensive, uh, but I I, I imagine that an imported uh, beer like that is all the more expensive. Norway, uh, one of uh, the most expensive countries I've ever heard of. But I I think the uh, minimum wage there is about €18 an hour as well. Thanks, John much appreciate that uh, we'd uh, oh actually John if you could tell us uh, the cost of a pint of local lager as well I think it would be very interesting uh, Deirdre and Kel saying it's a joke that the ESB is as expensive as it is um, and it's not uh, coming down uh, in fact uh, the only thing that is coming down is the rain very witty thank you indeed our telephone number 0419832000 text or whatsapp 0861800658 email Michael at LMFM.ie Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on LMFM. LMFM. Now, just uh, some more comments for you. Tommy in touch with us uh, about uh, the pubs saying that in many cases pubs are being forced to close up because they've priced themselves out of the market. The price of a, a few pints on a night out has gone through the roof in recent years. People just can't afford it anymore. It's as plain and simple as that. It's cheaper to go to the off-licence and get a, a crate of beer or a couple of bottles of wine, invite some friends around and enjoy the crack at home. Angela says it's very difficult to have any sympathy for the publicans when they've been charging people through the roof for drink and for food for years. That being said, she admits it would be sad to see the demise of uh, the rural pub. It's a lifeline for many elderly and lonely people in rural parts of uh, the country. Betty Daly texting us uh, today. She says, Michael, if the government stopped legal aid for some of uh, these criminals with hundreds of charges against them. That would free up money and it would be better spent to help law-abiding citizens who are on the breadline. Thanks, uh, Betty, for that uh, WhatsApp message uh, that comes to us uh, from Helen about uh, these speed sponges rather than speed ramps in Lordship. She said, everything Stephen said is correct. As a resident in Lordship and somebody with small children in the local school, I know how dangerous this road is. I witnessed a car overtake a lorry on the pedestrian crossing yesterday. The ramps are a disgrace. Shame on the council putting lives in danger. It also takes ages now to try and get onto the road. Please listen to the community who have to live with this every day, says Helen. Thank you indeed uh, for that as well. Our telephone number if you want to make comment on the programme today, 041 text or WhatsApp 0861800658 email michael at lmfm.ie Now, if you or someone you know suffers from depression, bipolar disorder 
or related mood conditions, there is help at hand and free of charge. Let's speak to Stephen McBride, who is the Director of Services with AWARE. Good morning to you, Stephen, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. You've uh, announced uh, that two separate programmes will be uh, available to people free of charge on a, a virtual basis uh, in September. Tell us a, a little bit more about the programmes that you're offering to people. Good morning, Michael. That's no problem, and thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak about our psychoeducational programmes, which are designed for, as you said, people with depression and other mood-related conditions to come uh, together uh, in that virtual setting and speak about their experience of depression and learn new tools and ways of coping with their experience of depression and feel as though that they can receive the support from fellow group members and to empower them and to work through those feelings and thoughts they have that are debilitating them or having an impact on their lives and to bring about real uh, and lasting change for themselves from the support they'll receive in the programme and also from the facilitator of the programme. Right. Uh, And these are uh, proven to be effective, are they? They are indeed, yes. We have a a wide range of of evidence and we've uh, researched our programmes and do so in an ongoing way that shows that people uh, who engage in the programme uh, describe themselves feeling more content with how they experience uh, themselves in the world. They feel as though they're able to speak uh, more openly to their friends and loved ones and also are able to think a little bit more helpfully about themselves because very often the way we think about ourselves and for people with depression, uh, how they think about themselves in the world can often be uh, unhelpful or um, engaging in, in you know, unhealthy kind of thought patterns and working through some of them can be a very freeing experience and uh, allow us to cope with life challenges uh, in, in a better way, I suppose. Mm, is it possible to do that in a group setting or maybe you'd explain to us how it is? The possibility that emerges in the group setting, Michael, uh, I suppose, comes from the idea that hearing other people share their... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. 
experiences and them talking about what it's been like for them really uh, reduces the sense of stigma that a person may be experiencing because very often people come into our program say I never knew other people felt the same way or thought the same way I did so that sense of identification or connecting with other people that you don't feel as though you're alone in it because very often uh, people who use AWARE as an organisation and come to us to, for support feel as though they're in it alone or are isolated in their own minds, mm. carrying worries, fears and, and thoughts about uh, themselves in the world. And what about that stigma? Does that make people hesitant to go into group therapy? Uh, are, are people more uh, inclined to go into one-to-one therapy sessions uh, because of uh, the stigma and the idea that it's something to be embarrassed about and they don't want anybody to know about it and how could they go in front of a a group of people and talk about their problems? Sure, indeed, you know, and and, and we see that, you know, the idea that people perhaps uh, initially uh, would prefer to speak uh, individually to someone uh, and in addition to that, you know, and however, we would also say that for people coming forward, they're under no obligation to share uh, anything they don't feel comfortable with. So people can come along and adopt a, a listening brief and uh, no one's under any pressure to share anything they don't feel comfortable with. And there's a series of class exercises and tasks um, that are explained by the facilitator to work through. You know, so there's real tangible and uh, uh, learning outcomes from the programs that can be applied to people. So people can work away in between the sessions as well, the six sessions that we provide to, um, you know, bring about some of that change into their lives. So uh, really, you know, the main point that I would make about Mm. the program is, is that people can learn from other people by listening to them. So it's not necessarily just what you share but it's how you listen to others and try and, and learn from them because that's the idea that we have in the programme. Very good. Tell us this, uh, do you assess people uh, and uh, then decide uh, which group is suitable for them? Because there's a spectrum, isn't there, uh, of all of uh, these conditions? Uh, I mean, you can be a bit depressed and very depressed. Yes, indeed. Yes, that's a good point, Michael. You know, so for people who have a diagnosis of bipolar disorder, we have a specific educational programme Uh, for them and that program is opening up there's um, four programs opening up next week and for further information you'll get it on our website aware.ie so that's for people with a diagnosis of bipolar disorder the life skills program the group program I'm describing now also is uh, based uh, virtually uh, and we do have a program in in the courthouse on Main Street in Duleek starting on the 12th of September um, at half seven in the evening time and that program is for people with uh, who are experiencing anxiety stress or mild to moderate depression so in answer to your question yeah it's it's, it's on a broad continuum so we have that specifically for people who maybe are living with bipolar disorder which is a, a serious mental health condition uh, and, and also people uh, who are experiencing mild to moderate depression which very well may be experienced um you know, as a challenging uh, condition to be living mm. with. And that, that's worked with within the Life Skills Adult Programme that we have. Okay, and uh, just to uh, repeat the details uh, of that programme in Duleek, if you would, please, uh, Stephen, because otherwise the programmes are online, aren't they? 
That's right, yeah. Uh, so there's, yeah. A, there's a variety of, of programmes online for people maybe who uh, have uh, accessibility issues or transport issues, you know, around the Loud and Mead area, you know. So, you know, it can be um, very much more accessible for people to engage in virtual programmes and in the comfort of their own home. Yeah. But the programme program in Duleek, you know, is taking place in the Courthouse Hotel on Main Street, Duleek, on Tuesday, starting six weeks from Tuesday the 12th of September at half 7pm. And for further information, you'll get it on, on our website, aware.ie forward slash programs. Okay, and uh, I take uh, there's details of all the programs on your website, but uh, apart from that program in the Courthouse Hotel, all you need is access uh, to the internet, and then you do this from the comfort of your own home, I take it. Exactly, Michael, yeah. So all you would need is access to the internet, and we will send you out the, uh, the Zoom link for the program, uh, once you've registered your name and your email address, you will receive the Zoom link and all you would have to do is log on, as I said, from the comfort mm. of your own home at the time of the programme. Okay, uh, and completely free of charge. Uh, I, I think uh, sometimes uh, you'll hear of family members who'd be more enthusiastic uh, about uh, these programmes than perhaps uh, the person uh, who would benefit from them. Uh, what would you say uh, to family members if they can't convince somebody to get help? Is there any advice that you would have, Stephen? Uh, I suppose in an, in an ongoing way, it's trying to support a person and keeping the lines of communication open. You know, we, we interestingly, too, have a Relatives and Friends program, which is for carers or supporters or loved ones of people living with depression and bipolar disorder. And those virtual programs are also going live on the week beginning Monday, the uh, 11th of September coming. You know, so you'll, you'll get information on those programs on our website. But in answer to your question, Michael, what we do recommend is for people uh, to, to persevere and not give up, acknowledging how frustrating and, um, you know, challenging it can be when uh, in a relationship with a person who is, um, you know, really struggling with uh, depression or bipolar disorder or whatever the mental health difficulty, you know, and trying to acknowledge your feelings around that and keeping those lines of communication open and also not neglecting your own needs as a person. So trying to engage in your own uh, self-care and thinking about yourself because oftentimes in a relationship where uh, depression uh, or, or the, the relationship dynamic has shifted and a person's own needs uh, get lost in that. So it's very important for the supporters, relatives and friends and loved ones of people living with depression to look after themselves too. Okay. Uh, and generally speaking, we're talking about uh, six to eight week programs. Uh, they're free of charge. Uh, and uh, we're delighted uh, to support what AWARE is doing because it's a fantastic service and highly recommendable to people. Thank you. Stephen, thank you uh, indeed uh, for joining thank us. Thank you very much, Michael. Uh, as you say, there's more details on aware.ie. Uh, and thanks to Stephen McBride, who's uh, Director of Services for AWARE. Uh, let me go back to the price of a, a pint if I can um, 18 euro a pint uh, in Bergen in Norway you remember John told us that that's a pint of Guinness and we were asking uh, what does the local lager cost he's been back in touch he says so a Guinness may cost anywhere from 12 to 18 euro depending on where you go uh, at our place the only Irish owned and run pub uh, Irish pub that is in Norway the normal price for a pint of Guinness is 11.15 today's exchange rate. We also do deals for regulars for around 9.50 and family owners get around 50% off that. Uh, Lager 
Uh, that's uh, 0.4 to half a, a litre, never a full pint. Normally costs between 8 and 12 euro. We charge 8.50 for 0.4 of a litre and 9-ish uh, for half a litre, again, with deals. To make money or even break even on the likes of Guinness, Kilkenny and Magners, we should be charging closer to 15 quid. So we were a bit off on the 18 euro. Food in most places start at 16, 18 euro. Thanks very much, John, for getting back <laughs> to us with that fascinating uh, data. Uh, I find it fascinating anyway. Thank you, as I say. Our, our telephone number 0419832000, text or WhatsApp 0861800658, email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael, michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Uh, the National Council for the Blind in Ireland uh, tells us that last year just 82 dog fouling fines were issued by local authorities across the country. That's 82 across all of Ireland. Uh, in County Louth, nine fines were issued. In County Meath, none whatsoever were issued. County Meath is one of 18 counties around the country that handed out zero dog fouling fines. Let's speak to Graeme McGrath, who's uh, the Communications Executive with NCBI. A very good morning to you, Graeme. Thanks uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. Why are there so few fines being issued? Is it because dog owners are picking up after their animals? Um, in oh, Thank you for having me on, Michael. Um, in, in our experience and from the kind of testimony from our service users, um, we would say it isn't actually from uh, from people picking up after their dogs. So um, again, it, it is a low number, and we we don't uh, we don't want to hammer the councils here because it's it's one of those it's an awkward thing for for uh, for wardens to catch, um, for 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 them to be able to hand out fines, they have to catch a dog owner in the act of not cleaning up after their pet. And you can imagine how many people walk their pets each day uh, in each council area around the country. Um, it would be impossible for for um, uh, dog wardens to catch every single one of uh, one of those dog owners who don't pick up after their animals um, doing it in the act. You know, yeah. Um, and it so, only takes but, a few, and I think that's the point because if somebody walks a, a dog on a certain street twice a, a day, uh, and it goes on the street twice a day, which isn't unthinkable, by the end of the week, there's fourteen lumps of poo on that street. Exactly, exactly. Um, and the real impact of that is beyond the fact that it's obviously not a nice thing to look at. For people who are blind or vision impaired, um, dog poo actually poses a real risk. Um, in the most serious instances, if someone who um, isn't able to see the dog poo on the ground steps into it, they could potentially slip and fall. And we've heard instances um, uh, of that happening. Um, in in other cases, people who use white canes, for example, who walk as their cane taps off the ground, their canes can go through that dog poo without them realising. And then when they fold up their cane, poo, the poo ends up on their hands. And it's a really distressing thing as well for someone to have to go through when all they wanted to do was get out and about independent and to just kind of get out and about and, and, and um, live their day as anybody else mm. would. You There's know? a particularly it's, it's, bad smell of dog poo. It's stomach churning, I, I think. Uh, but it's far more serious than that, isn't it? Because there's the risk of disease. Uh, I mean, if you touch the stuff and then your hand goes anywhere near your mouth, uh, there's a real chance of getting sick. Yeah, yeah. There, there's, there's lots of different... Um, 
there are lots of different kind of hazards that, that it poses um, and especially for people who are blown in the vision impaired and who, who can't see it you know um, I suppose a, a sighted person would be able to walk around it and it would be would be um, less of a nuisance but still it's not nice to see in our, in our towns and city regardless but from our perspective it is really about the safety of uh, our service users mm-hmm. and people who should be able to use our towns and cities like anybody else yeah, uh, and I, I know that when I'm out walking, I'm always looking ahead of me, looking at the pavement, uh, and I'm obviously very lucky uh, to be able to do that. Uh, is it a case, though, that when you're not uh, the people you represent, in other words, Graeme, that invariably every day or every other day uh, they come across dog poo and um, the cane goes in it or they walk in it or whatever the case is? Yeah, absolutely. It's it, it's a it's a daily occurrence for people. We ran um, a survey, uh, the information of uh, about which we we released last week, and um, the people coming into contact with dog poo is in the top three kind of obstacles that they face um, in uh, in their daily lives when they're out and about. Um, that's alongside cars parked on footpaths and um, that's alongside weedy bins being kind of strewn into, into footpaths um, after they've been collected um, in the morning. So uh, it is a, it's a huge issue. And I, mm. again, the people who work on the front lines for NCBI with our service users will, will hear about those stories from people every day, whether that be someone who has slipped and injured themselves or somebody who's just had a really unpleasant experience having walked walk through dog, uh, dog poo. We, we give out about the rain. Um, we've had an awful lot of rain. It's been a washout of a, a summer. Um, but if we didn't have the rain, uh, most dog poo would just sit where it is uh, because most of the streets in most of our towns aren't cleaned. Uh, well, it's one of those things. When we again, when we when we when we spoke to the, uh, the, a lot of councils around the country, um, um, and we asked them for for the figures that we've presented, um, they uh, lots of lots of councils came back with with um, different initiatives that they had in place to encourage people to clean up after themselves. And I suppose that's the the crux of what this is, um, to to kind of ask people to take that extra twenty or thirty seconds to clean. Mm. Uh, to clean up after themselves, but we we do have um, information that, and, that some councils have told us about the the types of things that they're doing. And that, to be fair to them, that it does that does include cleaning um, cleaning dog fowl and when the the people who are obviously clean cleaning the streets come Maybe across in town centres, yeah. But once you go outside of uh, the centre of uh, the towns and into the estates and that, forget about it. Um, how much is the fine? Um. You know, I don't have that information <laughs> okay. to, to hand. I'm sorry. No, no worries. I, I'll get that for you uh, in a second. Uh, but the point I was coming to here is you, you said it's very hard to catch somebody in, in uh, the act or the dog in the act and them not cleaning up after you. I, I think if I uh, came across a street with 14 lumps of dog poo on it, I'd say to myself, there's a problem there. Uh, and there's at least one person uh, who walks up and down the street every day and doesn't clean up after their dog. Uh, maybe if I, I sat here for a day or two, I'd catch them, uh, and maybe the fine would pay for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's definitely something that would again, obviously, the, the, with the numbers being so low, mm. one hundred and fifty uh, euro on the spot is the fine. There you go. Um, I mean, uh, surely, sure, surely, there's a commercial uh, argument uh, to put wardens on streets where there's an ongoing problem with dog poo. 
Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, that's, I'm sure that's a, a, a tactic that councils can employ to do that. But I suppose, like, from a, from a really basic perspective, it's for us, from NTBI, we don't want people to have to shell out 100, 150 euro when it's really when it's really something that can be so easily avoidable. I mean, mm. I mean if a person who is walking their dog, I know, I know you say there are some mm. people who will disregard it, but we want to try and bring those people along with us. Mm. And it's a case of, instead of having a warden camped out on the street handing out 150 euro fines to everybody, why can't we try and ask those people to just take the extra 20 seconds, pick up after your dog, mm. it means you have a 150 euro left in your pocket to spend on your energy yeah. bills, which we all know are high, or mm. to spend on something fun that you could do with your family at the weekend. You know, yeah. it's, mm. it's we, we, we really don't want to hammer down on uh, um, having more people fine. That's that's not where we're coming from. We just want to educate the public about the impact that they can have through their own kind of good behaviour and the impact that um, happen on people who are blowing the vision impaired from people who don't pick up after the dogs. Mm. Yeah, well, it's 150 uh, on the spot uh, mm-hmm. or a summary conviction to a fine of up to €4,000. Uh, and uh, I'm sure you're right. That's the approach that should be taken. Bring people along with you. Uh, but from my experience, that's going to be impossible with some people. Uh, and like a lot of things, you need a carrot and a stick, don't you? Uh, and maybe that stick of 150 or €4,000 uh, if if it was known that that's the risk you're running, people would think twice. Uh, and a couple of f- fines uh, along those scales, front page of the local newspapers or on the LMFM news, and people might start changing their habits and doing the right thing. It's a case of forcing people to do the right thing if you can't convince them to do it. Yeah, it, it, I, I suppose the, yeah, you're right. In, in certain in, uh, instances, it, it is the reality that that, that, that will probably have to happen to people but from yeah from our perspective and we've we've had a good week and we've had a good uptake from um from media across the country to kind of help us minimize that as much as possible i suppose and to try again take people along with us absolutely and uh, you certainly have been getting a, a lot of publicity about keeping the footbats clear i uh, see uh, the councils have uh, certainly been more proactive uh, in terms of finding people for parking in appropriately uh, there was 164 such fines in county loud last year and 422 in county Meath. Yeah, again, that, that actually, in the survey I referenced earlier on, um, was the number one obstacle that um, blind vision impaired people who responded to that survey uh, would come across on kind of a daily basis. Um, and it, probably, again, a, a more serious one in that um, if cars are parked on footpaths and they're, they're uh, sufficiently onto the footpath to block the pathway, um, People are people who are blind or vision impaired are often forced out into the streets. Everybody actually are forced out into the streets. But when it comes to people who are blind or vision impaired, they may be forced to walk into traffic that they can't see, which is a huge risk. Um, and also, NTBI works with people who are blind or vision impaired to help them um, with orientation and mobility to be able to get out, get out and about on their own independently to, to get out in, the, in their towns and cities. And um, they may have specific routes that they that they travel. So if a car is blocking a footpath and they have to come off a footpath in an unfamiliar place, um, it can also cause an issue where they they, they may uh, fall into traffic. Okay. Graeme, thank you for joining us uh, and nice to talk to you. Graeme McGrath, the communications executive for the NCBI. That's the...
National Council for the Blind in Ireland. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, uh, some of uh, the comments. Paddy in Drogheda in touch with us uh, saying, speaking anecdotally, dogs poo at roughly the same time in the same place every day. And it would only take catching a few in County Loud, let's say, find them the maximum, up to 4,000, uh, and that would put the message out there that the council mean business. Thanks, Paddy, for that. Uh, we'd uh, Somebody else WhatsApping us saying, as a dog trainer, I teach dogs to toilet in their own yard. People feed dogs, then take them out to the toilet in public. It's crazy. Thanks, Joe, for your message to the programme. Uh, somebody else saying, why is uh, why are dog bins so scarce? Uh, from the Castletown Road down to Toborona, there's none. Why? Um, I don't know, but why do people uh, not pick up after their dogs there or anywhere else? I don't think that's any excuse, is it? Uh, I mean, you just carry it around in a bag. Uh, you're hardly out that long with the dog. Uh, James Drogheda on a completely different subject. I thought this was very interesting because we were hearing about the amount of money that the government take in tax on every pint that is sold in every pub around the country. Uh, James asks if he's paying alcohol tax on alcohol-free beer. Hmm. Uh, you're paying something uh, absolutely extra and unnecessarily so to somebody, whether it's in taxes or to the pub or to uh, the drinks industry, uh, the brewer or whoever it is, uh, because they are the same price, aren't they? I thought that was very interesting. Thanks, uh, James, for that. 0419832000 is our telephone number. Text or WhatsApp 0861800658. Email michael at lmfm.ie. Now, speaking of drink, alcohol specifically, Alcohol Action Ireland is uh, calling on uh, the government uh, to take certain steps uh, which they feel would see a reduction in the amount of violence and lawlessness uh, that uh, so many people are complaining about recently. Let's speak now uh, to Sheila Gilhini, who's uh, the CEO of Alcohol Action Ireland. And uh, a very good morning to you, Sheila, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, you, you believe it's going to get worse when alcohol legislation is liberalised? Uh, yes, thanks very much, Michael, for having us on. We do have a concern that um, in the proposals for the upcoming sale of alcohol bill, there's a whole range of uh, proposals within that about extending licensing hours, uh, bars and restaurants from 11.30pm um, to 12.30, facilitating late-night opening of bars to 2.30, making it easier for venues that don't have a license to be able to get what they call a cultural immunity license and uh, a number of other things as as well, you know, including the, the requirement to extinguish a license for opening a new premises. So, you know, when we look at some of these things, the, the basic thrust is more alcohol will be available to be sold. Uh, and we, we're very, very well aware from, you know, jurisdictions right around the world that when you increase licensing hours, when you increase the availability of alcohol, you sell more alcohol. And with more alcohol sales, you get more alcohol harm. So we already have a situation right now where people are feeling uneasy about being out at night. We know actually from surveys uh, about 50% of people um, have experienced harm from strangers drinking in the, in the, in the past year. So that's, like, that, that's already you know, where, where we're at, at at the moment. We are concerned that if you pour more alcohol into that situation, you will only make things worse. 
We're concerned that there will be additional burden on policing for the, for the Gardaí. Very definitely a, a worry about um, increased pressure on our EDs, our hospital systems. And, you know, there's even just basic stuff like, you know, who would be paying for the, um, you know, the, the additional transport plan that, that, mm. that would be needed uh, to cope with that, extra street cleaning, rubbish and removal stuff like this. These are all just basic questions that yeah. haven't been answered in relation to these proposals. Yeah, uh, and uh, they're very good questions, I think, uh, and I think uh, you're possibly right. Uh, you're probably right, in fact, uh, but I think there's probably a, another set of questions uh, that could be uh, lined up against the ones that you're asking because I, I don't think the vast majority of people are, are going to drink more alcohol uh, themselves personally because you can get alcohol in more places 24 hours a day. Most people are, are responsible. Uh, the vast majority of people aren't drunks or yobs. Uh, and what we're talking about here is drunken yobs. Uh, and that really is a, a minority of people. We have legislation in place, uh, which is obviously being ignored uh, by publicans or other outlets uh, that sell alcohol. Uh, it, it's an offence to be offence to be drunk and disorderly in a public place. Well, I, I'd hesitate to call anybody a drunken job. That you know, what we recognise is, and again, I'm just going back to the evidence on this: that when you have more alcohol for sale, you do get more problems from alcohol. Uh, you know, and I can point to just a couple of examples here. In Amsterdam, they found that when they extended licensing hours by just an extra hour, so an extra hour uh, of licensing mm. uh, availability actually led to a 33% increase in the number of alcohol-related injuries uh, compared with other parts of the city which didn't have those extended um, hours. But I think um, that's because people are being served alcohol when they're drunk. Uh, oh, there, there's there's certainly uh, questions to be asked mm. about, you know, the the, the serving of, of alcohol. But you know, and I, I'm, surpri- I'm surprised. I'm surprised. I'm surprised that you're being slow to describe some people as drunken yobs because that's where the problem really stems from. Most people go out and have a drink, and they don't assault anybody, or, or rob them or start shouting uh, abuse. They have a drink, uh, they socialise, they see their friends, uh, and they go home, and they don't do anybody any harm. Uh, Absolutely, but I will say, you know, we do have alcohol problems, which um, also include, for example, you know, people having accidents, falling over. We have people who have problems, you know, with a mental health problem, and when they have, you know, alcohol taken, unfortunately, we see that there is... um, you know, that has an impact on their mental health uh, as well. So it's not a case that they're a drunken job. It's a case that, oh my gosh, you know, that, that alcohol has added to problems with maybe anxiety, depression that, that's mm. there. And sadly, we know that there is a link, for example, between alcohol use and suicide. But it's the same point, is it not, that uh, people are being sold alcohol when they shouldn't be sold alcohol? Certainly, there is an issue of that, and and we know though that the ways of actually reducing those harms from alcohol they kind of fall into three categories: reducing the availability, reducing the level of marketing that people see for for alcohol, and um, having controls on on pricing. So it's combinations of those three things that that are needed. And what we're saying to Minister Helen McEntee is, before going ahead with these proposals. You need to do a, a full health impact um, uh, assessment of this bill, and this was something that was actually rec- that was recommended by the Oireachtas Committee on Justice uh, back in March when they looked at uh, the, the kind of their examination, pre-legislative uh, examination of of the uh, of, of the proposals. Mm. And to me, it would just make sense. Why don't we cost out? 
what what will it actually what what's involved if you're going to extend hours? What's the likely cost? Mm. Who's going to pay for those costs? And you know, I was interested, like you know, when there was some discussion there going on about you know alcohol taxes. Al- alcohol taxes in Ireland bring in about 1.2 billion, but we actually know that the cost of alcohol harm is nearly three. It's, it's actually 3.7 billion. Mm. So you know, triple that amount. And you'd have to ask the question: if you're going to sell more alcohol, who is going to pick up the cost? Who is going to carry the burden for it? Mm. Yeah, um, but shouldn't we be selling less alcohol and extending the hours, extending the availability uh, all at the same time uh, by people uh, taking responsibility uh, for the licence that they've been given uh, and uh, the terms of uh, the licence, which is that they shouldn't be serving alcohol to people who are, are drunk and that for those people who are drunk... That's an offence. It's illegal to be drunk in a public place. Uh, absolutely, that there has to be responsibility taken there. But what we know, and the evidence points to this clearly, is that the best way of actually reducing these overall population harms is is to decrease the level of availability. So that's, so just, that's, that's just given into a minority of jobs. I'll say your, your word there. Yeah, no, but, absolutely. But you know, I mean, there's people yeah. who abuse alcohol. And of course, it's a disease when people are alcoholics and all of that sort of thing. Uh, and I'm sure that no matter what you do, people go home <laughs> with a bottle of vodka or whatever it is. Uh, but generally speaking, people are well behaved. They go out and have a drink uh, and they don't do anybody any harm, whether that's at eight o'clock in the evening or four o'clock in the morning. Uh, and they'll do it at different times depending on their lifestyles. So why should they not be able to get a drink at four o'clock in the morning? Because there's a small minority of people who can't handle their drink? Well, firstly, it's not really a small number of people where there is a problem. You know, of people who drink, about half would actually drink in a way that would be described as harmful or or hazardous. So it's not, we're not actually just talking about people who, for example, maybe have a dependency problem. It's a much, much bigger problem than that. Mm. Um, And, you know, and I really come back to the range of... So are you suggesting that, that pubs should never serve anybody more than two pints? Um, I'm saying that what is needed, what we know that actually works, is that if you reduce the availability what, of alcohol... I know, alcohol, but that's what, that's what you mean by harmful drinking. Uh, and I think a lot of people, maybe the half, half of the drinkers that you talk about would disagree with you. Uh, and they feel that, you know, it's not harmful, that they're, they're, they're quite happy to do that. Uh, and they believe uh, that life is full of risks and uh, that uh, you have to have a balance in all of these things and uh, you have to relax uh, as well. Uh, I mean, there are uh, two sides to that argument, Sheila. There's certainly a case, you know, just to, to look and see, do people understand, you know, kind of the, the, the level of harm that is being experienced, you know, both by themselves and by others around them. Right now, people's primary source of education, if you like, on alcohol is from the marketing that, uh, that they see. We're exposed to literally millions upon millions of euros worth of alcohol marketing, which sells you a message that, you know, it's grand, go out, every occasion is a drinking occasion. So that, that's the message that we all absorb because we are absolutely saturated in, in alcohol advertising and, and marketing. Every occasion is marketed as a drinking occasion. And this bill very much falls into that same kind of approach that we want to enhance uh, our nighttime offerings. And the only way to do this is to increase the sale of alcohol. So we're saying there, there is, there's, there's really a case to be to say step back, look at what happened in every other jurisdiction, and we, we have you know pointed this out to the, the Minister for Justice that there is clear evidence 
whether we're talking about Australia, whether we're talking about in the UK, whether we're talking in, uh, in, in, in parts of, of Europe, that when you increase alcohol availability, you increase the level of harms that are experienced. And somebody somewhere, whether it's individuals, whether it's families, whether it's these services um, or state services such as policing or, or um, ambulance services, EDs, uh, you know, somebody somewhere is going to have to pick up the tab uh, on this and we should at least know what is that tab what is the cost and it needs to be costed properly and then I think we could have an informed discussion about whether it's appropriate or not to uh, extend licensing hours. Okay we'll leave it there for the moment and thank you indeed as always for joining us on the programme today that's Dr Sheila Gilhini who is the CEO of Alcohol Action Ireland. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on LMFM. Uh, we're to have a, a referendum on uh, the constitution uh, which uh, talks uh, about uh, the role of women in uh, the home. This is Article 41.2 of uh, the constitution uh, uh, which should be removed uh, according uh, to a recommendation from the Citizens' Assembly uh, because, of course, it is undoubtedly outdated. Uh, the Citizens' Assembly says that that should be uh, replaced rather than just removed uh, and uh, that it should instead give um, uh, some... Uh, I beg your pardon, recognition to care in uh, the home. Um, now, there's a letter that you'll see in some newspapers uh, today uh, that is uh, from a group of civil society groups, the National Women's Council of Ireland, TRIOR, the Information Service for Unmarried Parents, Families Carers in Ireland, One Family and the Trade Union, SIPTU, uh, which is calling on the government uh, to make the wording known. Uh, that wording was expected, their letter says, by mid-May and the deadline has passed without knowing the exact wording. It'll be increasingly difficult to build a civil society response. Let's speak to Catherine Cox, who's Head of Communications and Policy with Family Carers Ireland. A very good morning to you, Catherine. Thanks for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, you're concerned about the delay and if that means that the government is backtracking on this commitment that it made in March to go ahead with this referendum. Hi, uh, Michael. Yep, thanks for having me on. Yes, um, so I suppose just to say for us, we want this referendum to go ahead. Um, we welcome um, that the outdated language of a woman's place in the home would be removed, but really important that it would be replaced with non-gender specific language that recognises the social and the economic value of care in the home and indeed care in the community. And it obliges the state to adequately support that care in the home and care in the community. So for us, this is really important. We believe it's a milestone in terms of uh, society valuing family carers, valuing the work that they do in their homes. But we are concerned because, uh, as you said, the wording was meant to be, uh, we were meant to have that wording in May, then at the end of June. We're now, you know, nearly at the end of August and we still don't have it. And we need the time to have a civil society discussion mm. on what that means to raise awareness amongst people. 
we actually also need to know if we're voting on three things, three different wordings in the referendum or two because we haven't that hasn't been confirmed. So it's really important that government goes ahead with this but releases the wording as a matter of urgency mm. so people have that time. You usually have 16 weeks is the recommended time to have that discussion and debate um, and get everybody in society involved in a really, really important issue. Okay, let me read Article 41.1. It says, in particular, the state recognises that by her life within the home, woman gives to the state a support without which the common good cannot be achieved. The state shall therefore endeavour to ensure that mothers shall not be obliged by economic necessity to engage in labour to the neglect of their duties in the home. You say there's uh, possibly two options or three options that will put in front of us if we go to a referendum. I take the first one is simply to delete that. Um, no, the, um, both the Citizens' uh, Assembly and the Joint Oroxis Committee have suggested removing it and replacing it with more gen- non-gender specific language, which is what we would like to see. Um, the three issues within the referendum, the first one will be around Article 41.2, which is about care in the home. The second one is around the family and the definition of the family. And we and other civil uh, groups would welcome the definition of the family being extended to include the non-marital family because at the moment the definition within the constitution only speaks to families where the marriage so we'd like to see that extended and the third issue that may be um, on the referendum uh, ballot paper will be around uh, gender equality and again we would like to see um, I suppose non-discrimination enshrined in our constitution so they're the three issues that could be um, on the referendum paper but again until we see the wording we will not know if the three will be there but also what that wording will look like Okay, do you think that it's possible for the state to be able to afford a situation where carers shall not be obliged by economic necessity to engage in labour to the neglect of caring for somebody in the home We believe that, um, and I do think that things have moved in the last 20 years, we do believe that family carers are beginning to be recognised for the work that they do. Now, that hasn't um, broken down then into actually family carers being recognised and supported. But we believe that change in that wording will be a first step towards that recognition because at the moment unfortunately carers are not really recognised for what they do. They are certainly not supported and they don't have the resources that they need to care safely for their loved ones in the home. They save our state 20 billion euro every year um, yet that is taken for granted and they're not given the supports they need. And similarly, this also extends to care in the community and for home care workers um, and their terms of conditions and work as well. We have thousands of home care workers who are not paid um, the correct or you know adequate amounts to, for them to stay in the paid workforce in um, providing care uh, in the community. So this would also, um, we would hope, begin to ensure that those workers would also have proper terms and conditions of work and allow them to continue to provide care in the community as well. Okay, well that constitutional recognition of carers uh, be a a completely different situation uh, and lead to the state being sued? 
No, we don't believe it will because uh, within the Constitution, um, it will recognise the value of, of care. Um, it may, uh, the change in the Constitution may result in um, legislation into the future, but we believe that that legislation would only recognise um, the value of care in the home. And there is already uh, a statutory entitlement to home care legislation coming down the road. The government has committed to that. It's going to be here within the next two years. So this replacement in the Constitution will only strengthen that. And it is time that our government and our society really value the work that carers do, family carers do, but also really value the rights of people with disabilities as well to live in their own homes, in some cases independently. So we believe that this referendum has this the opportunity to do just that. Um, but as I said, we do need to see the wording and we need that to see that urgently. Thanks, Catherine. Catherine Cox, Head of Communications and Policy with Family Carers Ireland. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.